electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Keynote by CNBC Events. I'm Tyler Matheson. On this podcast, we bring you in-depth, candid conversations with executives, experts, and thought leaders. Today, you'll hear from Chevron CEO Mike Wirth. He's leading his company through a global energy crisis and record gas prices, while his company and industry make moves toward renewable energy sources. Wirth spoke with my colleague Sarah Eisen at CNBC's Evolve Global Summit on July 13th, 2022. Here's their discussion talking about businesses undergoing massive transformations. We are at a very interesting point in history for you, your industry, your company, because we need fossil fuels now more than ever. And the war in Ukraine has only exacerbated that. But we also need to protect our, our planet and prevent climate change. So how, how do you navigate that tension as a company that's planning years in advance? Sarah, we, we've been around for 143 years. So we've had to evolve from a time when our products weren't used for cars and planes because those had not yet been invented. And so uh, we've evolved continuously for, uh, like I say, you know, nearly a century and a half. I've never seen a more exciting time for our industry. Uh, we're leveraging uh, our capabilities to deliver the lower carbon energy that a growing world needs. That means we deliver the oil and gas the world desperately needs today. And at the same time, we invest in new technologies, renewable fuels, hydrogen, carbon capture and storage, geothermal, to build out an energy system for tomorrow that's more diverse, uh, that is lower carbon, and that can help support the growth that we see in the world. So the opportunities today are greater than they've ever been. The challenges are great. Uh, but it's an opportunity for us to apply uh, innovation, uh, human ingenuity, and harness the, the, the power of markets uh, to meet these great, big, uh, these great big challenges. So you can do both at the same time. You, you can turn into an, an, an more ESG-friendly energy producer, but also pump out record amount of oil because the world needs it right now? Well, I think we've always done uh, multiple things at one time. And I think that actually, you know, the, the, the word used to describe this conference, Evolve, is the right way to think about the energy transition. Oftentimes people describe the energy transition as if it would happen instantaneously or, or very rapidly. And in fact, uh, the global economy continues to grow, the population continues to grow, and the energy system has always evolved with the expectations of society, with the advances in technology, and, uh, and the demands of consumers. And so our business continues to evolve, uh, and uh, we, we have to be able to do both, meet the needs of today, even as we build the energy system of tomorrow. How severe, how acute is the supply shortage right now? In the world? Well, the world's pretty tight. Uh, there's no doubt about it. The price signal tells us that uh, production uh, was constrained when global economies were shut down and, uh, and demand declined. And then as demand has come back very rapidly, supply in our industry and many others uh, can't uh, respond quite as quickly as demand has grown. And so uh, we see that uh, in, in the prices. I think markets are tight and, uh, and, and likely to continue to be so for some time. The question is, what happens with, with the economies? You mentioned a lot of it was caused by the burst, the, op the reopening after COVID. Now there are concerns about 
recession. We got another hot inflation number today. The Fed is going to keep hiking interest rates. And the price of oil has really come down, reflecting a weaker economic environment for Europe, the U.S. So does recession sort of help deal with the supply crunch? And the price increase? Well, ultimately, uh, when you have uh, a high price, uh, you know, market's telling us demand is strong, supply is tight, and you need uh, somehow for those to balance better to bring the price down. That can be through more supply, it can be through less demand. I think in the short term, the thing that moves more rapidly is demand. And so a slowing economy does take some of the steam out of that demand growth, which can help moderate prices. Uh, the real challenge uh, for uh, the globe, I think, is to see the investment in supply continue so that supplies can uh, grow. And as we come through whatever form of economic slowdown we see, uh, that the supplies are there to support growth going forward. Do you think we've seen the peak in terms of price of of oil? Yeah, it's so hard to say in in this business. Uh, I can tell you what the price of oil will be, but not the day that it will be that number. Um, Well, what I would say is that the, the tightness in supply hasn't gone away. And, uh, and so to the extent that we were to see uh, China reopen fully, and we're, we're still seeing some COVID uh, uh, restrictions there, see air travel return fully, uh, there are some up legs in demand that could start to really pull hard on that supply again. And then, of course, there's the risks around this, the situation in Ukraine, uh, the sanctions, and how all of these things play out. And so uh, I would say uh, I think it's good for the economy that prices have moderated. But I I also see the risks remaining skewed towards the upside. Assuming that Russia, I guess, gets shut out, what's going to happen to Europe and the gas that's flowing there? Well, I think the next few months are are very concerning for for all of Europe. Germany uh, kind of at the epicenter of that. Uh, It's a big industrial economy that relies heavily upon uh, the energy system that supports it today. And the risks to that are, are very real. Uh, one of the big pipelines that supplies Germany is down for maintenance right now. Inventories are not building uh, the way they, they normally would. And as we head through the fall and into the winter, uh, I think these risks begin to accumulate. And so it's a, it's a real concern. And uh, I think the whole world is, is watching and trying to help in, in whatever way it can. The concern that Russia, after this Nord Stream pipeline maintenance, eventually shuts it off. Well, or that, uh, that supplies are limited, that sanctions uh, and, and other consequences of the conflict uh, create restraint or constraints on, uh, on the supply of energy into Europe, uh, which can further exacerbate the challenges that they're already facing. Can you, can you do anything about that? Are you, are you helping to alleviate some of that pressure, gas, well, we're, and natural we're, gas production? We're working with, um, with the U.S. government, with other governments, to try to offer uh, suggestions. We produce gas around the world. Uh, the challenge is uh, you need to be able to get the gas to the market. And uh, the easiest and most efficient way to get gas into the market is with a pipeline. Right now, the pipelines tend to run from European supplies. Uh, the other way to get in is liquefied natural gas. The U.S. is a big exporter of liquefied natural gas. Uh, we have positions in, uh, in Africa, in Australia. Uh, generally, these tend to be uh, committed on long-term contracts to customers that uh, uh, we can't just unilaterally uh, redirect supplies and not meet our contractual obligations. So a lot of work going on around the world uh, between producers, uh, consumers of gas that may have alternatives that could generate power differently, that could free up some of that gas to go to Europe. Uh, but it's not a simple equation, and that's why I think the risks uh, remain skewed to the upside. Did, did Europe, did Germany just make a huge geopolitical error relying on, on Russia in this way? Well, I think it's a, it's a broader question than that. 
Germany for, um, for the last couple of decades has pursued an energy policy that has increasingly emphasized uh, renewables, has shut down coal, is shutting down the remaining nuclear, and, uh, and has relied heavily on, on natural gas, primarily from Russia. Uh, there's a, you know, a, a saying that goes back to Churchill in World War II that uh, energy security is, uh, is grounded in flexibility and diversity of supply. And I think what, what we've seen is as you narrow your choices, uh, you create vulnerabilities, unintentional, no doubt. But I do think that the policies that, that we've seen pursued there have created a, a, a vulnerability now that is very real. What about our own energy security in the U.S.? Obviously, we're in much better shape and, and we have great production. How, how much of your production is coming from the U.S. right now? Uh, over a third of our production is, is based here in the United States and, and growing, growing rapidly. Last year was the largest, uh, highest production we've ever had in our 143-year history. First quarter of this year was up 10% uh, on the prior year. We're producing over 700,000 barrels a day in the Permian Basin. By 2025, we'll be producing a million barrels a day in the Permian Basin. And our company only produces about 3 million barrels a day. So a third of our production uh, just a few years from now coming from West Texas and New Mexico. So our country is blessed with abundant uh, resources of all types, including energy resources. Uh, the responsible development of them is something that our industry has shown we can do. And it's a great strength of this economy to uh, have that uh, resource and the diversity of resource, not just oil and gas, uh, coal, but uranium, wind, solar, biofuels. Uh, this is a country's blessed with uh, resources of all type. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a car. It's the two-door coupe that was there for your first drive. The hatchback that took you cross-country and back and the minivan that tackles the weekly carpool. For the cars you couldn't live without, trust Amica Auto Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Demand for energy is projected to continue rising in the future. To help keep up, Chevron is increasing their U.S. oil and gas production. And they're innovating to help do it responsibly across their operations, including their Gulf of Mexico facilities, which are some of the world's lowest carbon intensity operations, helping supply energy that's affordable, reliable, and ever cleaner. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash meeting demand. The Democrats, other politicians say you're not doing enough. We, we need more oil. We need more refining capacity. You're instead returning cash to shareholders and not investing it in the energy we so desperately need right now. Well, we're actually investing much more this year than we did last year. Our capital spending will be up nearly 50 percent from around 12 billion dollars to over 18 billion dollars this year. We're growing oil and gas production. We're also growing renewable fuels production. We're investing over four billion dollars just this year out of our 18 billion dollar budget on renewable fuels primarily in the United States. So we're trying to do our part. But what we need to see is policy that encourages responsible development of all types of energy resources here and, and policy that recognizes uh, we need a pragmatic uh, balance between economic prosperity, energy security, and environmental protection. And we can't have policies that skew just to one of those three elements 
or we get the unintended consequences that, that we see in other parts of the world. And I think that's the challenge for our country. Well, so what does that say about this administration's policy? You've, you've been critical. A few weeks ago, you sent a letter to President Biden, got a lot of attention, and then he called you sensitive. Has there been any follow-up since then? I've had uh, interactions with the Secretary of Energy uh, since then, and uh, we've talked about uh, the near-term situation and concerns, particularly about hurricane season coming up and uh, in fuel supplies to this country. Uh, so there's a, there, there's a dialogue that, uh, that is underway uh, at that level, and, uh, and we're working with the government to try to find a way to deal not only with the near-term uh, concerns that they have, but also to, to have this balanced conversation about the medium and longer-term uh, policy framework to ensure that we have stable markets, that we have a lower carbon energy system, and that we support our economy. But why did you feel that you needed to speak out publicly and send, send that letter to, to President Biden? What, what are they not understanding about the industry and what you're trying to do? Well, the, uh, the president had sent a letter uh, to me earlier that, um, that I felt called for a response. And uh, it had uh, suggestions that the industry was not investing uh, to support uh, the growth in energy supplies. It suggested that, uh, that, that we could do more. And I felt like it was important to uh, tell him what, what our company is doing and also to, uh, to call on him to have a, a more balanced conversation. This is an administration that has been critical of our industry, uh, has come in with a, a climate agenda, which we support. Uh, we, we want to see a lower carbon energy system. We believe climate change is real. But we need to have a balanced conversation about how we move forward. And so that was really uh, part of what I wanted to respond to the president's letter with. The president also tweeted out blame for oil and gas companies for, for keeping prices at the pump high and, and not bringing them down for American consumers, something that Jeff Bezos went after the president saying that that is incorrect. Do you have any ability to affect the prices at the pump? The large majority of service stations in this country are, are owned by independent business people, small business people. Uh, of uh, the stations that, that uh, have our brand on them, there are fewer than 5% that we actually own. And so uh, we uh, supply to uh, our uh, franchisees that, that you know, then sell on to the public that set their own prices. And they have a variety of issues they deal with everywhere that they operate, including their competitive markets. And so I'm, I'm not sure that the, uh, you know, uh, the president's suite fully appreciated the nature of the market and, um, uh, and the people that, that actually operate the service stations. You also get criticized for buybacks, given the fact that you are seeing profits double, quadruple, given what's happening with, with oil. What's your response to that, why that is a good use of cash? Well, we have uh, a financial framework that we've long had. Uh, first uh, priority is uh, to sustain our dividend, which we've grown for 36 consecutive years. Uh, the second priority is to reinvest in the business, to grow the cash flows in the future, to support that dividend. Uh, we have to keep a strong balance sheet because we're in a volatile business. As we've seen two years ago, oil prices were negative. Today, they've been you know, over $100 this year. You need to have the financial strength to weather uh, these kinds of commodity markets. And then we have cash surplus to those first three needs. The shareholders are the owners of the company. We are a publicly traded company. We've got an obligation uh, to the pension funds, the teachers, the firefighters, the others that uh, are represented through our investors uh, to return the cash to them because it really is their investment in our company. And so we can do it all. We can grow production. As I said, we can invest uh, to deliver more energy to the market and we can be responsible and return cash to our shareholders at the same time. I think that's what a, a good company does. So as long as oil prices stay high for Americans, do you anticipate more political blowback like this? Investigations, perhaps, that Democrats have called for looking into whether you and 
the industry is price gouging? Well, high prices um, are hard on the economy. They're hard on our customers. We'd like to see prices more stable and, and in a more moderate band. So, uh, you know, history tells us when we're in a period of time like this, uh, there are political, uh, you know, solutions that people seek. There are policy ideas sometimes that have unintended consequences that, uh, that get proposed. There are investigations that, uh, that get launched. Uh, so we've seen this before. Uh, I would hope that we could have a different kind of a conversation about this as we go forward, but no doubt we'll uh, we'll see some of the other activity as well. So you, you mentioned that you are investing around renewable energy, which is something the administration want, and society wants to see as well. How far are you along those goals of where you want to be? Well, we've set a strategy to uh, invest in growing renewable fuels, hydrogen, carbon capture and storage, um, uh, carbon credits and uh, other types of nature-based solutions and then other novel technologies like geothermal. Uh, we have uh, experience in all of these businesses. They leverage the strengths, the value change, the capabilities that our company has. We, we don't do a lot of wind and solar because it's not something that we have unique strengths at and there are others that are very good at it. Uh, I mentioned that uh, this year we're spending $4 billion growing our renewable fuels business. We've made a major acquisition of one of the world's best and largest renewable fuels producers. We've formed a joint venture with one of the largest agribusinesses in, in the U.S. to create uh, new agriculturally based feedstocks. And we're investing in things like renewable natural gas, where we take methane emissions that are unabated into the atmosphere from dairy farms. We're working with, in partnership with dairy farmers to capture methane emissions, to get those into a pipeline so they can displace fossil fuel, natural gas, and can go into the natural gas system all of these help us meet uh, the lower carbon aspirations of our customers. So we work with uh, companies that own big trucking fleets, with industrial customers, airlines on things like sustainable aviation fuel, the, the, the shipping industry, to find ways to bring our technology and capability to bear to create lower carbon solutions that allow them to meet their needs. So this is an active area. We're spending billions of dollars on it just this year, and it's a part of our business uh, going forward. What, what, what are the implications of the shift to renewable energy? Is it, is it inflationary? Well, it's a, it's a, um, it pulls on different uh, parts of the value chain. And I think this is something to really watch. Uh, when the U.S. enacted uh, the renewable fuel standard in the 2000s, we saw corn-based ethanol become a bigger part of the gasoline pool. Corn prices went from $2 a bushel to $9 a bushel. So it had an impact yeah. on food because the energy system is so large that you start to attach different parts of the economy to the demand for energy, and it can manifest itself in, in these uh, you know, inflationary pressures. Metals are an area that we're seeing right now, as you see uh, batteries and uh, battery-powered vehicles uh, growing. Uh, the demand for lithium, cobalt, nickel uh, has driven the prices for some of these commodities up. And electric vehicles are still a very small portion of the vehicle fleet. If you were to see some of the um, ambitions of the automakers realized, uh, you're, you're seeing big multiples in terms of the demand for some of these metals, which come from only a few places in the world. Uh, and um, and so, so you create new, um, new supply chains that uh, pull on different resources. And uh, having worked in the energy industry for almost 40 years, one of the things that I've learned is that for most people, the scale of the global energy system is really hard to fathom. Mm. And so when you attach these other industries to it, you can create uh, uh, unintended consequences and, and, and kind of a ripple effect. What does an EV future mean for your business? Uh, we anticipate hundreds of millions of electric vehicles uh, to be in the global fleet 20 years from now. 
uh, and we still see demand for oil and gas growing. Uh, because only How about, does that work? Well, only about 25% of a barrel of oil ends up in gasoline. 75% ends up in airplanes, ships, agriculture, mining, petrochemicals, a whole host of other uses where uh, there are not uh, easy and readily available alternatives today. And so that's the big challenge for us, is how do we find ways to continue to meet the needs of those industries, lower the carbon emissions associated with that. Uh, but the, the demand for uh, the, uh, uh, the, the outputs of all of these other industries continues to grow as the population grows, as the global economy grows, as the middle class grows. And so demand for oil and gas is not simply tied to cars. And, and, and this is one of the great misconceptions. misconceptions. Yeah. And finally, Mike, just to bring it back to today, I mentioned we got a 9.1 percent gain on consumer prices. Inflation is everywhere, not just in, in oil and gas. What, what is your expectation about how long this lasts based on what you're seeing out there in the economy and the areas you touch? Yeah, Sarah, we work around the world and, um, and we see these pressures here in the U.S. Certainly we see them in other parts of, of the world as well. And we talked earlier about uh, the uh, supply response to the strong demand we've seen coming out of the pandemic. I think this is a, um, a, a, a structural element of the economy, at least here in the short to medium term, that is, is very real across uh, many, many different industries. Uh, I think monetary policy and fiscal policy uh, in some ways may have contributed to some of the things that we're seeing. And I don't think these things unwind immediately. I think they do unwind over time. But I think, uh, you know, we're certainly uh, anticipating a higher level of inflation than we've seen historically uh, in our planning process. And, um, and I think uh, it's uh, something that all companies should be, you know, I'm, I'm sure all companies are uh, rethinking, uh, you know, their plans for the, you know, the next few that years. Is- that was Mike Worth, Chevron's CEO. He joined us at CNBC's Evolve Global Summit on July 13th, 2022. The keynote is produced by the CNBC events team. If you enjoyed this conversation, please share with your friends. You can visit CNBCEvents.com to learn about upcoming events and how you can join us. We'd love to see you there. I'm Tyler Matheson. Thanks for listening. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.